Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alastair Campbell. Now, I saw this morning, Alastair, that you were up as normal, at five o'clock in the morning, reading through all the questions on Twitter, uh, <laughs> haranguing the rest of the politics team for still being asleep. Um, well, I mean, it's extraordinary because you're meant to be on holiday. We all thought we were getting a break this week. Anyway, I'm sure in in this activity, you found some excellent questions. You went through the 700 questions. Where do you want to start? I want to start with this fascinating one to both of us from Mario Brianto. Mario's found the evolution of our, that's you and me, Mental health journeys since the podcast was launched, absolutely fascinating. Alistair, says Mario, seems to have found positive energy from the government day back all, whereas Rory seems to have plummeted to despair. <laughs> who, who is propping up whom? Now, I don't actually feel that about either of us. Well, I, I think it's possible that there's an explanation of this. I mean, if, 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 uh, as you do, uh, Alistair, you, you come from the Labour Party, you're going to necessarily be pretty cheered up by uh, the Conservative government blowing itself up. And if, like me, you come from the Conservative Party, you're going to be pretty depressed and uh, down on what's happening. No, I'm very, da- I'm very down about the state of politics generally, but I do have a lot of energy and, I, and, I, and the government does inspire me to kind of keep going at them. But I don't, I mean, you do keep banging on about a 10-year global recession, bingo, but... I don't get the feeling that you're in a state of despair. I think you've still got hope in there somewhere. I do have hope. And I realise that I'm overdoing it. I I was thinking about this recently, actually. I was thinking that I have been very disobliging about members of parliament. And I'm forgetting that actually, there were some really kind of wonderful people. There there were some people who were real exceptions, almost kind of saintly people in the House of Commons, who, unlike the rest of us, were not totally consumed with envy, ambition, backstabbing Mm. and horror. The, the sad thing, of course, is that they tended not to be the most successful ones. So they tended to be these kind of saintly figures on the back benches that everybody sort of kind of respected, but also kind of pitied at the same time. It's a pretty noxious atmosphere. Yeah. Now, one, one of the suggestions for the rest is politics bingo came from a guy called Chris, who said that it ought to be on there. Uh, somebody asks a question. One of the, the the other one, so you ask you get asked a question. The other one, that would be me, goes off at a tangent, and then they forget to answer the question that was first asked. Now, I don't think we do that too often, but somebody has pointed out, this is unethical Tories, said, I loved the shout out last week, but you didn't actually answer my question, which was about the role of 55 Tufton Street and why these suspiciously funded think tanks don't get exposed more and why we allow them in our democracy. Well... 55 Tufton Street, for people who don't know, it's a little street just off uh, the House of Commons, and it's where I believe the Taxpayers' Alliance and other think tanks have been based. Institute of Economic Affairs, all the right-wing lot, all the sovereign individual people. And uh, why are they not more exposed? Well, I guess they are. I think the problem is that it's pretty difficult. I don't know. I mean, you you were a newspaper journalist. How easy do you think it is to get much interest out of editors on the questions of how the Taxpayers' Alliance is funded if nobody's really heard about the Taxpayers' Alliance? Well, the, the only thing is they, they, do have, they do have a role in our democracy. They are very well funded. I, we talked last week about the whole influence of American money and American politics. I think they're a big part of that. 
And I can always remember when I was, you say I was a journalist, when I was on the Daily Mirror, I always used to get introduced as Alistair Campbell of the Labour-supporting Daily Mirror. You never hear anybody described as so-and-so of the Tory-supporting Dacre rag Daily Mail. And you never hear anybody introduced whoa, whoa, as whoa, whoa, whoa. I think I think if it's if you're reading an article in the New York Times, they would say the conservative-leaning Daily Mail, definitely. They might in the New York Times, but they don't on the BBC. And they don't on... You know, most of our. Do, does the BBC refer to the Mirror as Labour supporting and doesn't I refer think to the Mail or the Telegraph? Generally, they they refer to the Mirror as a Labour supporter or left leaning or the the left wing Guardian. And they Definitely. don't do that. Don't do that with the Telegraph or the Mail. No, I don't think they do. Call them out on that. Well, we just have. We just have. Um, so I, I I think they are to the right of the Tory Party uh, as it was under William Hague and when you were there, probably in the same place as the Tory Party now. But I don't think we – I think we treat them like they're independent arbiters, of, like they're a think tank. They're not. They're very, very politically motivated. They're a big part of Brexit and they're a big part of this whole – Well, a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of these think tanks are – I mean, it doesn't matter whether they're from the left or the right – will come from very strong ideological positions. By definition, the people who join them are joining to try to push a particular view and they'll have very strong views. I mean, this is mm. – the, the, the point is that they're probably much less influential in Britain than they are – again, we keep talking about the US than they are in the US – but yeah. they will have incredibly strong views on any number of things. Depending on whether you're on the left or on the right, it will be very different views on Israel-Palestine, very different mm views on trade unions, very different views on austerity, etc. Um, but you need think tanks desperately because one of the other things we talk about is the fact that the ministers and the politicians have zero time to think. So somebody's got to be out there generating some ideas and challenging the status quo. Oh, I'm all in favour of new ideas. Now look, Caroline Bhattacharya says to me, ask Rory why he doesn't mention the podcast in his Twitter biography. For God's sake, Rory. Blimey, I've just been called out by, by her on the Twitter. Do you not even mention it in the, your Twitter biography? Yeah, well, I don't mention anything in my Twitter biography. I mean, I, I, Well, do you I, think you could put co-host with Alistair Campbell of The Rest is Politics and maybe even put something about Rest is Politics Plus? I don't know. I don't even say that I was a politician in my Twitter biography, but, but maybe I need to. Here, listen, here's a, here's a great question, and I, I reckon we're both going to give the same answer to this. Dr. Lee John Curley, I've just been to see Hamilton, the musical about an underrated founding father in the United States. Who do you think would be equivalent in recent UK politics? And I guess they're saying somebody who isn't necessarily seen as a huge historical figure now, but might be when they're writing musicals in 200 years. Wow, blimey, the Hamilton of contemporary British politics. How about Hilary Benn? I'd love to be able to say so. I've got a horrible feeling that it's Nigel Farage. Nigel Farage, wow. But I don't think anyone... Do they want to watch a musical about him? The point about Hamilton, I think, is that he was meant to be quite a sort of distinguished, serious. Yes, sort of yeah, guy. but Ni- the reason I say Nigel Farage is like colourful. He did make change, even though at the time he wasn't the one necessarily at the front line of the change. Why do you say Hilary Benn, by the way? Well, I think he reminds me of Hamilton. I mean, they, they sort of almost <laughs> look similar. So, 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 Hilary <laughs> Benn is rather sort of, I can imagine him as an 18th century founding father. I think he's got all the ingredients for that. Um, listen, I was going to have a go at you for Thor Bartlett, who very, very kindly has come in with a question saying, Alistair, if the mispronounced Lake Como deserves a mention, then surely you need to be corrected with Jan Ugr Fjortoft. And he points out that you are pronouncing Ugr as Arger or something. Arger, yeah, that's true. I think there's something a bit pretentious about when I, mean, I am, a, as you know, I love foreign languages and I do speak French and I do speak German. But I think if I were to take a Norwegian name, Janaga Fjortoft. Well, you could just say a, Ogre. I mean, you don't need to. Yeah, and also Ogre, Ogre, 
ogre is such a sort of bad uh, word in on. English, isn't it? Basically, you just didn't know how to pronounce his name. That's no, true. But, it, but uh, Jan Ager, by the way, or Jan Ogre, as you now insist on that we call him, he's a big fan of this podcast. And he was very hurt that you'd never heard of him. Um, so sorry. Because he's, he's been a big part of English football for many years. I know we've been talking a lot about different imaginings, social imaginings in Northern Ireland and the different ways in which uh, unionists and Republicans view history. So here's a question from James Marshall, which I think is fascinating. And I really want to know the answers. He says, you both have Scottish clan names. How have traditionally the Stuart and Campbell clans got on? And I know very well what the Stuarts think about the Campbells, but I wondered whether you had any sense of what the Campbells thought about the Stuarts, whether you were even aware of us. There's quite, there's quite a bad history. There is it's a not bad as, history, isn't it? It's not yeah. as bad as the Campbells and the McDonald's, but there is quite a bad history. And, and what's, your, what's your sense of what you did? Because basically we've got you down as the baddies. Have you, did, did you get the any Cam- the, Campbells is, the Campbells are seen as the baddies by everybody, but that's mainly because the Glencoe massacre in which the Campbells sort of went and were nice with the McDonald's and then butchered them um, was such a kind of act of bloody revenge that that's gone down in – it's probably the most famous clan battle. But I think we had all sorts of troubles with the Stuarts. One of them, I can't, I can't remember what it was, but there was, there was a sort of, it wasn't, a, I think it was an individual Stuart that the Campbells decided had to be taken out. This was the Appen murder, wasn't it? Yeah. So I'm glad that you got, you, you were taught some of the stuff. I was a bit worried that coming from that Campbell perspective, maybe you were completely unaware of the horrors you perpetrated. So the answer, the answer, James, is my, my account of this is the Campbells were this kind of big dominant West Coast clan and, you know, with deep Celtic roots who were just incredibly politically able and ruthless, ended up controlling vast swathes of Scotland and took every opportunity. Exactly as it should be. This is what all Campbell should be. Uh, Every opportunity, particularly to screw over the Stuarts. And they kept letting us down on every occasion. Every time when there was a chance to sort of stand up for the proper cause of, you know, the great Charles I, Charles II, (laughs) Bonnie, Prince, Charlie, any of the people they could have come in behind, they immediately allied usually with the Protestants and often in effect, I'm sorry to say, with the English. So, Yeah. I think it's fair to say that with the, the, the Campbell clan had a reputation for being utterly ruthless and at times a bit two-faced. But Rory, with all that stuff, you've walked right into a question I wasn't going to ask you from Dan Malloy. Oh, Yes. Rory, do you still have the tartan trousers you wore for the probation awards a few years ago? Uh, good. Thank you, Dan, for remembering. Goodness, thank you for coming to the probation awards. Yeah, they're, they're hunting Stuart, tartan trues, definitely. They've, I've managed to tear their knees, so they're slightly dodgily tied up at the knee. But yeah, I definitely, and I, I will wear them a lot. I not, not, not only in trues, so I'm sometimes in a kilt, but you're right, for the probation awards, I was in my trues. All right, Rory, let's go in for a little break. Great. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. 
It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics, Question Time with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. Here's a question for you, Brian C. Can you cover the competence of Lindsay Hoyle? What is the process to remove him if enough MPs are not satisfied with his performance? Does the general public have a say? Well, there we are. Well, it's perfectly obvious from that the questioner is not very happy with the performance of, of, of Lindsay Hoyle. One of the many ridiculous conventions in the, in the House of Commons is this idea that the, the speaker doesn't want to be the speaker and they're very reluctantly dragged to the chair but and there's an acclamation as they go there. But I guess where I'd defend Lindsay Hoyle is that his job is to defend the conventions of the House as they exist. I, I've had conversations with him about this. He knows I have very, very strong views that where Boris Johnson has been Prime Minister and he's so clearly a liar that there have to be systems that, that can be used to bring that to attention as he lies. Um, now, Lindsay Hoyle, his basic position is that that is a matter for the House. It's not for him. The House has to decide its own its own rules. And therefore, he does call out people who've called Johnson a liar. I think, he's, I, I think it's a very difficult job when you've got a rogue prime minister I think John Boko did the job in a particular way, which some people loved and some people hated. And I think Lindsay Hoyle's tried to get a little bit back to being a bit more of a, a more conventional speaker. The trouble is he's been doing it at a time when we have a deep, we've had a deeply unconventional prime minister. Yeah, I think Lindsay Hoyle, I th- I, people really like Lindsay Hoyle, or they did when I was in the House of Commons. He was a mm. very, very personally popular man right way across. And I believe it's also the son of an MP. Doug Hoyle, who was the f- chairman of the Parliamentary Labour Party. Both of them, like you, Rory, massive rugby league fans as well. <laughs> and we, all, we all know your love of rugby league. Now, go on. Rosa Wigley. Wherever I go, shops and restaurants say they cannot operate their normal hours because they don't have enough staff. That's definitely, definitely true. I've seen a lot of that. Seems like the whole country has effectively half shut down because there are not enough people to fill our jobs. Do we either need to develop a program to invite people in from other countries to join our labor market or develop a system in which jobs are better allocated to those who are currently unemployed? So there are two things going on here. One of them is that a staggering number of people, I believe nearly a million people, have left the labor market. And that seems to be partly driven through covid People, economists are still trying to understand it, but people have taken early retirements. A huge number of people have left the labor market, not actually looking for jobs now. And secondly, of course, as we see in the South of England, particularly, but in many, many other parts of Britain, 
a lot of jobs which used to be done by people from the European Union are no longer being done by them at all. What, what do you think about this? Well, I, I, I saw the question, and you know, maybe this is Pavlov dog, but I immediately said, well, this is largely driven by Brexit. Uh, I think a huge, the hospitality sector is really, really struggling. When we were up in Scotland a, a few months ago, several of the hotels said that they were actually not able to run at full capacity because they didn't have the staff because they'd lost all their Spaniards and Italians and Romanians and so forth. And I think until we admit to these these realities, it's very, very hard to fix. And we still have, I mentioned yesterday, the the, 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 the Sunak video of him sort of shredding the European Union legislation. Until we admit that Brexit is having these consequences, how the hell can we fix them? And the point about, you know, getting those parts of the the labour market back that we want, I think it's going to be a lot harder because Britain is not seen as, as a welcoming country in the way that it was. And I also heard the, the other day the British Dental Association saying that one of the reasons that we're running out of dentists is because we actually had a lot of dentists from the European Union. So we're, it's not, we're not just talking about cleaners and hotel workers yeah. here. We're talking about the professions as well. Well, we also talked about the fact that there's likely to be a shortage, they reckon, within 10 years of 450,000 doctors and nurses and 450,000 people in the care sector. Yeah. I've been looking a little bit at the global talent visa, and I, I don't know whether this is right, but it seems to me that one of the problems there is that it's much easier to bring in somebody to work, for example, in a tech company, bring in somebody with computer skills, than it is to bring in somebody to chop vegetables in a restaurant. Yeah, And and all of that builds up because I was talking to my friend Oz, who runs a restaurant in London, and he was saying that one of the reasons they can't retain chefs is that the chefs are getting completely worn down because they're having to do 15 jobs around the kitchen, which other people used to do to help them, and they don't have those people to help them anymore. Hold on, when you said Oz, when you said Oz, this isn't Oswald's, is it? No, 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 no. It's not. It's not called Oswald's. Oh, Actually, it's, it's oh, Rory. You, were, I was. The, 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 some the, whoever wanted Eaton on Bingo was almost there, almost oh, there with that one. Oh, good. No, well, so, so, so shout out to Oz. Oz has a has a a, a restaurant in, in um in Shepherd's Market. Do you have shares in Oz like you do in Taiwan Semiconductors? I wish that I could have I have shares in Oz. This <laughs> restaurant's called Kitty Fishers, if anybody ever wants to go to it. Now, somebody who has been worrying about the ULES in Heathrow. So Simon Skutsky, and he says, Sadiq Khan made a manifesto commitment to expand the ULES into Heathrow Airport. Heathrow is the largest employer in the UK, responsible for 114,000 jobs, many of whom are low and moderately paid. ULES means up to £12 every day to park with electric cars exempt. Workers will be forced to either pay that each day or make expensive lifestyle changes to accommodate. Is this fair? It's something that I, when I was running to be mayor of London, I'm afraid, it's something I dreamt up because actually putting an ultra low emission zone around Heathrow would generate another £350 million a year, we calculated then for the Mayor of London, which we could then spend on cleaning up air quality in the city and also getting some affordable housing going. On what basis, sorry, on what basis would it raise so much money? Oh, because the number of people going in and out of Heathrow every day, both passengers flying and staff coming in and out, if they had to pay the £12 a day, would generate an incredible income. But what isn't part of the purpose, though, to get people to use public transport? Well, so there would be a hope that you'd reduce, but I'm afraid probably for Sadiq Khan as honestly, for me, one of the issues is raising money for things that really need to be done, like building decent, affordable housing in London. So it really is a reminder of something we've talked about a lot on the show, which is the way in which taxes, in this case, the tax on trying to improve air quality and reduce reduce carbon emissions, fall on the very lowest paid and how much governments 
well-intentioned governments, in this case, I think the mayor of London being pretty well-intentioned, ends up imposing a lot of pain on people on low incomes. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of the current climate policies need to be rethought, because if we keep pushing ahead with them, we're going to end up a lot of people alienated. We're back on that one again. But equally, if we carry on not doing some of the things that we need to do, we're going to end up without a planet to live in. That is true. That is true. Now, gone back to you for another couple of final questions, because you've been up at this since five in the morning, and I feel that we're not giving you enough. <laughs> I did notice that we had quite a few questions this year, this week about trans issues. Okay, go on then. Give us, give us a trans question. Harriet Rhodes, why are trans issues being used in the way that they are in culture wars? And then there was another question from somebody who said that they felt that this constant banging on by Sunak and Truss this is Tom Coates. In, in their attacks on all the woke rubbish, as they call it, trans people are feeling very targeted. Yeah. Does it even go through their minds that that might be the effect of the way that they run these campaigns? It should. Well, it's, it's, it's and it's also, I, I'm sure it definitely should. It definitely should. I also think that these campaigns are very odd. I mean, stepping back, I, I think that my guess is that in 10 years' time, nobody will begin to understand what's going on and why people were obsessed with this. I definitely feel if you talk to anybody under the age of about 20, um, they are very, very clear and very, very relaxed. Doesn't matter what social backgrounds, doesn't matter what part of the country they come from about trans issues. This is a, an issue that's catching people. I think, well, I, maybe I'm being unfair, but I think the demographic that's really wound up about this tends to be a more middle aged, elderly demographic. Which is why Trust and Sue and I could go on about it. Yeah. Sunak's thing about lefty lawyers as well. I mean, this idea that left-wing lawyers are the problem when it comes to issues like asylum and immigration, it's, it's back to the lack of seriousness. But I think, look, trans people are amongst the most margin, the marginalised on so many, many fronts. And I think their struggles are bad enough without politicians making it worse just to get a few rounds of applause from the golf club bores. It's also interesting how difficult it is to get into the issue. One of them, of course, the incredibly angry, fractious issue where um, certainly on Twitter, uh, you know, we've seen this with J.K. Rowling, but you see it across the board. Nothing gets people more angry and wound up. But quite difficult to get basic facts. I've never seen, I don't know whether you have any estimate on how many trans people there are in the UK or whether anyone thinks they've got any way of finding out. Mm. I don't, I'm not even sure what, what sort of scale of population we're talking about. Well, it, and it's obviously a, it's a minority and it's a persecuted, but it's, you know, it's a minority that, is, as these questioners are saying, feels persecuted and feels more persecuted. I think you're right, though. I think when I look at, you know, my kids' generation, I think that I think they're just sort of, it's just part of virtually every school now that's part of it. It's just part of the conversation. It's part of, you know, the way the world is changing. And I, I, I think that uh, I just wish our politics would reflect that a bit. I think it will very soon, but you're right. Parody Boris. Parody Boris. Do you follow Parody Boris? Oh, yeah, I do follow Parody Boris. Yeah. Has Parody Boris written in? Yeah, he has written in. And he said, could somebody as incompetent of Liz Truss have ever become prime minister if I hadn't have lowered the bar first? Oh, he's asking as Parody Boris. As Parody Boris. And then um, somebody else was asking rather more seriously, why is there no talk of some of these people this is FFS Southwark. Why are there no consequences for the fraud, the theft of public money and the mismanagement? If this was a CEO or a COO we were talking about, they'd be in jail by now. I kind of feel that. Uh, not sure about that. Not sure about that. I'd like to know what it is they're supposed to be in jail for. I think the legal, the courts work pretty well for politicians. Misconduct in public office. Thank goodness in this country, I think one of the few things we've got is relatively clean, uncorrupt courts. So I do remain 
confident that if people commit crimes, doesn't matter whether they're a business person or a politician, uh, they can be convicted and sent oh, to jail. I think that's a very, I'm sorry. I think that's a, almost as naive, Rory, as that you, you accused Keir Starmer of being naive about the scale of the problems facing our politics and our constitution. And I agreed with you, but I think that is very naive. Oh, blimey. Listen to, I'm going to give it another plug. Listen to the London Grad series by Tortoise. And I think you'll find that our, a lot of our public life has been successfully corrupted. I do not have, sh- I do not have shares in Tortoise, Dom. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're coming to the end. Thank you all very, very much for listening to The Restless Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. That's Alistair Campbell, who sings German ABBA songs, loves Elvis Presley, loves Burnley, loves his bike more than he loves Rory Stewart. And all of you who are playing bingo, I hope you enjoyed it. And this is Rory Stewart, who uh, has now confessed that the very name Campbell troubles me a little bit. 